rock your world. Here I am again. His father's telling me that I'm his. Destination chosen long before the oceans swelled around the mountains like the thoughts inside my temple. Open-handed invitation. I see no plate at the table, yet a fork lays at my feet. It's so easy to believe when everybody's eating green. But when the last leaf fall, could I stand as tall as he? Greater than me, because that I could never be. A humble servant broken down and beaten with severity, wiped away the severance so all could walk with clarity. So really what's been scaring me? Off-kilter clerical errors? Airing out their heresy? Reflections, scenes in lakes of tears I try to wipe. My mess with mud. Setting stains will never leave unless you wash them in the blood. But is it Jesus that I really want? So here I am again to pray. You know the words I want to say. From walking paths wide with desire, flames I once stoked, I call to retire. Lashed by truths discovered, I see now who really was the liar. I scream from pain atop my twisted spire, from foundations built on vice-gripped ire. Is my picture-perfect posture pleasing? I sit with tears and questions pleading, a wounded heart that groans from shame. Will the Father answer or push away? So will this prayer be the change that lasts? You said you are the God of right now, today. Then change me with your spirit, I pray. You delivered them, so deliver me. Like one lost under a fig tree, when will you begin with me? Oh, you've already made that start. You say that this is that change of heart. It started with a plea. So now you take a seed and you grow it into a tree. It won't be perfect because I am not he. The one we all reject be in my heart. So here I am again. Where do I start? It is Jesus that I want. All right, hello everybody. Good to see you. Hello, we'll greet all of our campuses. Can we just, if you're in this room, let's make some noise to hear them wherever they are. Okay, at Edgewood and Havington and Aberdeen. People uh, online, wherever you're at. I don't know if you can feel it, uh, some excitement. We're on the eve of something very exciting. One week away, I, I'm starting to feel it because I've been talking to people who I know are getting baptized next week, and maybe that's you, or you might not even know it, and it, it might be you. This might be your time. Uh, maybe it is. Like, you just need to decide. You need to go. You need to put a stake in the ground and say, I'm going to follow Jesus. 
We've been talking in this series about the real you having a real conversation with the real Jesus and maybe you need to get real about some things in your life, about where you're at and where you're headed and uh, it's time to turn from some old things so that Jesus can make you new. If, if that's you, there's an opportunity. Um, you can just show up or if you want to talk with someone, you can text baptism to uh, 94062. Someone will connect with you again. Whether you do that or not, just come ready next week. It's going to be a fun and exciting time. In, uh, in the Jesus' story, uh, as we have it in the New Testament, when the calendar finally counts down to one week remaining, the intensity is ratcheted up a little bit. And part of the drama is that Jesus himself has a, a sense of this countdown. Like if you're, you're following the NCAA basketball tournament, everybody knows this is Final Four weekend. We all know it all comes down to this. Jesus knows it all comes down to this. But those who are following Jesus are mostly not getting this. They're oblivious to the approaching climax. Or they are just... Uh, having a different idea about what that climax is going to be. Well, this, this weekend of the year is the time when the church brings into view two things. Palm Sunday, the day Jesus rode into town, hailed as king, and Jesus' passion, as it's called, where we follow Jesus' suffering journey to the cross. And we're right here today. And in this series where we've been learning to pray, we're going to learn to pray, pray right here. And, well, we kind of have to say it, but I really think it's true. It might rock your world. And to help us prepare for where we're going, I, I want to, uh, I've got a couple scenes in my mind, both of them from when I was under 10 years old. Okay, the first one has to do with the TV show that I saw called Unsolved Mysteries. I don't know if you want, I think it's actually so old that Netflix has now rebooted it and, and made it something new. It uh, documented real-life situations, kind of had a dateline feel, and it would awful, off, often kind of follow these crimes, and the episodes would always end with, if you have any information that could lead to the finding of the killer, please call 1-800 or, you know, whatever, something like that. So I don't remember watching it a ton, but I do remember the last time that I watched that show. This particular episode was not about a crime. It was about what I guess you could call paranormal activity. It was portraying some kind of demonic influence. Not just ghosts, like just ghosts, as if that's not scary enough. But no, this was evil. Evil exerting an influence on people and in a home in a way that just it breaks your categories. Spiritual evil breaking in to torment and destroy. At least that's what you'd call it if you're willing to acknowledge that there's more to reality than what you experience with your five senses. This was more than I had ever experienced. And it was terrifying. Just watching it, spine tingling. Although tingling sounds like way too pleasant of a word to describe what I was feeling. There was a, a, a horror that came over me. I was disturbed, unsafe. I mean, I guess people seek out those kinds of feelings and that's why they watch horror movies. But I was not looking for any more of that. That was a long night for me. You maybe have had your own glimpses. The other scene has to do with something that is a little more normal for a, a child, an experience. Uh, it is when I went on my first roller coaster. Not like a kiddie coaster, no, no, a roller coaster. Huh? Now, 
if you've been, you know that this is something that uh, can be rather intimidating and you've got to work up your courage and maybe a friend goes with you to try to help, but there's really nothing that you can do to fully prepare for what you're going to experience. Um, Kevin Hart knows this. Maybe you've seen um, <laughs> when he and Jimmy Fallon went on the roller coaster. It's quite funny. Hey, if you haven't seen it, hey, don't watch it now because the church service is going on, all right? It, you can watch it later. But um, they realized, and I realized, when you make the decision to go on the roller coaster, you begin to feel the weight of that decision long before all those G-forces start working on your body. See, no, you decide to get in that roller coaster car, and those bars lock into place, snug against your chest, and it hits you right there. I don't get to make any more decisions. <laughs> I am not in control. This thing will now be deciding every move that I make. And my, I will be making lots of moves, whether I'm ready for them or not. You know how this goes. I'm trying to help us be prepared. And maybe give a word of warning. We're going into terrifying territory today. If you want to follow Jesus today, if you want to learn to pray today, it will rock your world because it will mean that you've got to stare some fears in the face. And in all likelihood, it will make you want to reach for some of those well-worn prayers that we have already picked up along the way, like why, God, or help me, God, and that's fine. Bring them along with. But they won't be enough to get us all the way there. Are you ready to go? You're not sure. It's okay. Well, okay. It starts off rather easy. When the week begins, anyone who wants to follow Jesus has just got to pick up a palm branch and fall in line and do what everybody else is doing. A lot of people want to follow Jesus on Palm Sunday. Any of us could find space on this bandwagon. Jesus is surrounded by crowds, which is not strange for Jesus. It's when he rides into the city, and then every day when he's coming back and teaching at the temple, it's the center of activity. Everybody wants to be close to Jesus. And then we're invited in even closer. In, in Matthew 26 or Mark 14, they give us this more intimate snapshot of Jesus having dinner at a man named Simon's house. He's, he's a guest there. And, and while there, a woman breaks all protocol and gets really up close and personal with Jesus when she anoints him with oil, which... Jesus receives as a person ready to die. Closer yet is the next scene, which you probably are familiar with because you've read it in the Bible, or you've seen Da Vinci's painting, The Last Supper. This is not Da Vinci's painting, but it, it is Jesus with just his disciples now. Well, Jesus and his disciples and the shadow of death which looms even larger now that the memorial bread and cup have been passed. Oh, and that Judas has agreed to betray Jesus, sell him out to his enemies. Next scene, Jesus leads them into a garden called Gethsemane. And his following is thinned down to three. Mark tells it this way. Jesus took Peter, James, and John along with him. And he began to be deeply distressed and troubled. My soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death, he said to them. 
I'm not sure I've ever stopped to consider what it would be like to hear Jesus say that to me. I mean, if, if Jesus said that to you, what would you say in response? It'll be okay, buddy. This is a graphic picture being described. Jesus is in a bad way. Translators of these words call it shocking horror, awe and dismay coming over Jesus. Or sudden and horrifying alarm at a terrible object. In light of that, the next move is, is a surprise to me. Mainly because I wouldn't have the guts to do this. Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they all tell the story of these events. And they all point out this detail that Jesus went a little farther. Jesus went beyond his companions to a place where he was all alone. He's in the woods, in the dark, by himself. Well, we've come a long way. I don't want to be in the woods, in the dark, by myself. And look here at our hero. This is not the dark night with chiseled pecs and a square jaw strutting through the shadows. No, Luke will go on to describe Jesus as sweating great drops of blood. He's overwhelmed with grief, horror stricken. He needs to be consoled. He needs friends, but they're back here. And I was just thinking how one of the, the ways that I tend to judge whether I'm going the right way in life and making the right decisions and doing what I ought to be doing is based off the affirmation of other people. Do I have others around me who believe in what I'm doing, that I'm going the right way? Are my trusted friends encouraging me? Are they giving me positive reinforcement? Are those closest to me still with me, willing to follow the path that I've chosen? I mean, you ask yourself these questions, right? And if you're not getting affirmation, you're going to doubt yourself, at least, if not, make an entirely different decision and change course entirely. If you've got trustworthy, godly people around you, then these are all good clues about whether you're doing what God wants you to do. But Jesus has gone out to a place beyond his trusty companions. Nobody is with him. Nobody is affirming him. Nobody is supporting him. Nobody is in his ear saying, you're doing the right thing, Jesus. Keep going. And yet, in the woods, in the dark, by himself, sweating great drops of blood, Jesus fell with his face to the ground. And he prayed, my Father, if it is possible, may this cup be taken from me, yet not as I will, but as you will. Alone in the dark, the only consolation available to Jesus is a real conversation with the real God. My Father, the burden is too much to bear, and I am overwhelmed. But what happens from this point forward is not about what makes me afraid. It's not about what the crowds crave or what my friends think or what my family thinks is best. It's whatever you want. 
Could you imagine having that conversation with God? In the woods, in the dark, by yourself. After that, Jesus returned to his disciples. And he found them sleeping. Couldn't you keep watch with me for one hour? He asked Peter. Watch and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. You know, if you're watching a Rocky movie or Creed or something, you, you see your battered hero in the fight of his life going 12 rounds in the ring, bloodied and staggering and barely able to stand against impossible odds. At least when he comes back to his corner, he's got people there who are cheering him on and bandaging his wounds and rubbing his shoulder. But Jesus got nothing. Everybody's asleep. Wake up, Peter. What I've taught you along the way must be put into practice now. Pray. Do not lead me into temptation, but deliver me from the evil one. This is a vulnerable moment. After what I've had to have been so defeating for Jesus, he went away a second time and prayed. Again, into the woods, in the dark, on his own. Nobody encouraging him, nobody reassuring him that this is the right way to go. In fact, it, it had to be the opposite. There, there was opposition. An evil presence has made subtle appearances in the drama to this point. I mean, Judas already succumbed to it. And then right, right before coming out here, we didn't read it, but Jesus said to Peter, Satan's coming for you. Temptation is real. You can ignore it, you can sleep on it, you can pretend it doesn't exist, but we can be sure Jesus knows who the enemy is and where the enemy is, and this is his hour. The writers of the movie, if you've seen it, The Passion of the Christ, they took creative license when they portrayed this scene. And I think they're showing us what we're supposed to see when the camera zooms in on Jesus in the woods, in the dark, by himself, and the tempter appears over his shoulder. The father of lies, the ancient snake. Jesus has squared off against the devil before, alone in the wilderness, weak from no food. And he emerged victorious despite Satan's skillful attacks. And we know Jesus often withdrew to places by himself to pray. And we don't know what all was happening in those intimate moments. But if there was ever a time that evil had a chance, this was it. Satan's already got a hold of Judas. He's coming after Peter. And now he's got Jesus right where he wants him. You can't do it, Jesus. This is too much for you. Nobody's with you. It's cute that your spirit is so willing, but your flesh is too weak. And besides, this ain't the life for a king. Surely God has something better in store for his anointed. Don't you want something better? You've got it all wrong, Jesus. This is a moment that I can't fully fathom. I don't go into the woods, in the dark, on my own, with evil spirits close at hand. I don't know what might have been pressing in upon Jesus or what voices he heard or what thoughts filled his head. 
But in spite of the temptations that assaulted him, in the face of an enemy who wants to devour him, with the hair on the back of his neck standing up, Jesus went away a second time and prayed, My father, if it is not possible for this cup to be taken away unless I drink it, may your will be done. Can you imagine yourself praying that prayer? Two times through now, I have begun to realize that I can't pray that prayer. And not just because I'm a wuss. I'll explain. Because you'll say, well, no, I thought this series was about we're supposed to steal prayers from the Bible. We can pray them ourselves. I thought that's what we were doing. Uh, Yes, just a minute. First, it it might actually already be coming clear to you as well that, that I can't, that you can't, carry forward the will of God in the particular way that Jesus is praying for right here in the woods, in the dark, by himself. You follow? Jesus is beyond us. Jesus is out on his own, submitting himself to God, joining hands with God to do what no one else can do, to go where no one else can go. If the will of God is going to be done in the ultimate, world-rocking, victorious way that God intends, only Jesus is going to be able to do it. And you might be grasping as well how much we need him to do it. If you follow the Bible's story, you, you see it. But even if you have never read the Bible, if you're keenly observing the aching world around you. And uh, tuning in to your own life, there are clues. Unsolved Mysteries doesn't give us the answers, but it clearly exposes the ugly and troubling problems. The Bible would say it this way, that we have needed Jesus to go into this garden, to face this enemy, to pray this prayer to God, your will be done. We have needed that ever since humans started praying to God and saying to God, my will be done. This is what happened when that ancient snake showed up in that ancient garden. You've heard that nice little story of Adam and Eve, right? Is it just an ancient fable? Or does it give us wisdom to see reality for what it is? It makes a claim. Everything came into existence and was designed according to the way God wanted it. For life and beauty and purpose and fulfillment. Humans were created in love because God wanted it. They were given access to the tree of life, the very presence of God. They were stamped with the identity, image of God. They were given clarity about what is good. They were given responsibility to be fruitful, to multiply life on the earth, trusted to govern wisely as God's stewards so that what God wants could blossom and flourish with the potential for which God designed it. These are gifts Lovingly given. This is not like the higher-ups at corporate headquarters are just shoving down out-of-touch policies and enforcing implementation on middle management. These are the keys to the kingdom. The keys to life. It's what God wants. 
God has given his will to those whom he's created and says, I've shown you what's good. I'm with you always. You have everything you need. Live. But according to the snake, it wasn't enough. God was holding out on Adam and Eve. Look beyond the boundary of God's design, he said. It's within your reach. See how easy it is to grasp? See how good it looks? I mean, if you want to call that good, who is God to say otherwise? It's pleasing. It's desirable. You want it. Take it. Did God really say you couldn't? Don't you see? Your will can be done here. That's right. Choose this path. Go this way. What can the tree of life give you compared to the life that could be yours when you say, my will be done? I'm paraphrasing the third chapter of the Bible. And I'm narrating a dream that we have all chased, a choice that we have all made. My will be done. You can do it that way. You can call that good. You can call that the key to life. But it's death. Satan is a liar. Mystery solved. When you shun God's wisdom because you know better, it's sin. And when we sin, all hell breaks loose. Paranormal activity is just one of the ways that we see that effect. Now, you, you can write this off as spooky talk if you want to. And, and shut your ears to, to the word sin, because that, that's really a strong word. Come on, no. But you've you got to find ways to describe what's happening in a world where evil has been multiplied a billion times over. Those who, are, those who sin are slaves to sin, Jesus says. He doesn't say those who sin are naughty. No, it's much worse than that. You're slaves to a brutal taskmaster that will kill you. All of creation has been subjected to frustration, Paul says in Romans 8. Languishing in the grip of evil on every scale. But don't distract yourself too much with corrupt governments and systems, broken as they are. Or you might blind yourself to your own shackles. The freedom to choose your own way and redefine good and do whatever you want is not freedom. You and I don't live up to our good intentions. We fail and we fall. We get hurt and we hurt others. We fear and we lash out. We're ashamed, but we can't bear to see it, so we cover it up to the point so that we can avoid having to call evil for what it is. But it is holding us captive. We all have a sense, something's wrong. It's out there, and it's in here. And it is evil. It keeps us up at night, and we want it gone. And we'd ask God to do it, but how does God rid the world of evil without getting rid of us? My will be done ain't getting us out of this predicament. In fact, it's not too dramatic to say 
that the more you insist on my will be done, it only increases the power of the snake in your life and in the world. The flesh is too weak to overcome the temptation and influence of spiritual evil that wreaks havoc in myriad ways. You can be blind to it, you can ignore it, you can sleep on it, or you can wake up. You can see that what we need around here is someone with the courage to stare that snake in the face and say to God, not my will be done, but yours, God. I can't do it. You can't do it. Only the one who went out beyond us, who was tempted in every way just as we are but is without sin, only he could pray this prayer and accomplish the victory that God wants. Only he who never gave in to the will of the snake could free us from fear of the snake and set us free to live according to God's will and not our own. Only Jesus could bring life out of death. No wonder it's called good news. The snake doesn't win. The cross is not the end. Only Jesus can prove God's purpose is still the same, to bring life and healing and blessing and goodness to the world. God is recreating the world through the recreation of those who want to love him back. God doesn't get rid of us. God transforms us. God rids us of evil when we submit our will to him. We're steeped in wrong. He makes us right. It's what God wants. I'm saying things that I can't even fully fathom. I can't parse them out exactly. But they're so beautiful and all I know is to claim and grab on to the truth when it says in 2 Corinthians 5, God made him who had no sin, to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Only Jesus could carry out what God wants for you and for me. The one who did no evil himself, but who allowed evil to do its worst to him in order to get the best of it when God raised him from the dead. The world has been waiting for someone who could sincerely pray, not what I want, God, but what you want. Not my selfishness that leads to death, but your self-giving love that brings life. Only Jesus could do that. Amen. In the woods, in the dark, by himself, Jesus went away one more time and prayed the third time saying the same thing. Could you imagine praying that prayer to God? The third time through now, I have finally begun to realize that I can pray that prayer, even though I'm a wuss, and you can too. Because in a very real sense, Jesus prayed what he prayed and did what he did for us, 
I don't go into the woods in the dark by myself in the presence of evil. Jesus goes on my behalf. He pays a price I couldn't pay. He wins a victory I couldn't win. And out of the clutches of death, he snatches a life I couldn't live without him. All through submission to the will of God. Uh, submission is, is not a popular word for us. But I, I think that the Bible has been trying to tell us from the beginning it's the key to life. The people who have the life that is truly life are those who, like Jesus, say to God, your will be done. I mean, clearly, the, the New Testament expects Jesus followers to be people who live and pray, God, it's, it's not about what I want, but about what you want. Philippians 2, do nothing out of selfish ambition. Do what? Oh, nothing. Out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, rather, in humility, value others above yourselves. Not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. In what way does your mindset need to change to be like that of Christ Jesus? What is of most value to you? Your interests? Your comfort? Your advancement? Or like Jesus, do you value others above yourself? Does that mean you shouldn't be ambitious? No. Be ambitious for the sake of others. Ephesians 5. Walk in the way of love, just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Love gives. Love sacrifices. Love is an action. It means my will takes a back seat so that I can elevate another. How is God calling you to do that? In tangible ways. Walk in the way of love. Act in the way of love, even when you don't feel like it. That's the key to marriage. Ephesians 5, 21, submit to one another. Each of you, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Jesus is the model. We watched him walk this road. And now he's sending marriage partners, setting them free to do the will of God in their relationship. Not worrying about their own needs or what they're getting out of the relationship, but focused on what they're giving to their partner. You want a marriage that lasts? It comes through, sure, trials and, and grief and pain sometimes, but it comes through a joy that transcends all of that. It's the joy of self-forgetfulness. Like Jesus, who for the joy set before him endured the cross. Now, you need to seek shelter from abuse if someone is beating you into submission, physically or emotionally or otherwise. But aside from that, if you're in a relationship, in what way will you prioritize the needs of your partner today? Submitting to them out of reverence for Christ. Romans 15, we who are strong ought to bail with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Each of us, well, we should please our neighbors 
for their good, to build them up. For even Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the insults of those who insulted you fell on me. May the God who gives endurance and gives encouragement give you what? The same attitude of mind toward each other that Christ Jesus had. He put you first. He gave up himself. Now may you do the same thing. May you pray the same way. And I know that could be terrifying. The snake is still on the loose for the moment. But Jesus has defeated him for us. Oh, he's fighting like hell. And and shrapnel's still flying around as long as we're in a world where people are saying, my will be done. So it might mean that we experience suffering. Not always, but it could. It's not that just, you know, God wants to make your life miserable or he's going to inflict pain on you until you say, uncle, no. But following God's will in a world full of people who oppose him is going to cause wounds sometimes. Jesus knows that. And he said, take up your cross and follow me. Suffering is part of the Christian journey. You don't have to seek it out. No, seek God. And if, when suffering comes in whatever form, in Jesus and because of Jesus, we have the strength to endure. To be forgetful of our comfort and mindful of God's will. Unafraid and victorious even in the face of terrifying evil. And if you're not scared of that, well then you're scared of the loss of control maybe. That that could be even more terrifying. Like I'm locked in. I've given up my will like Kevin Hart strapped to a roller coaster. If, If I say, God, your will be done with my relationships, with my finances, with my career choices, with my body, with my time. If, if I pray that, I'm afraid I'm going to lose something. Well, you will. You're going to lose something. Jesus knows that. It cost him his life. And it'll cost you your life. It'll rock your world. It'll change everything. (laughs) But you're going to have to think about what you need to put to death. But as you you think about that, you, you know that we have been united with Jesus in a death like his. And if that's true, we will be united with him in a resurrection like his. Romans 6, we were therefore buried with him through baptism into death. That just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may gain something. We may live a new life. If you want a new life, you got to put some things to death. You do that by saying, not my will be done, your will be done. Read the rest of Romans 6 for homework this week. And as you follow Jesus to Good Friday and to Easter, may we all learn to pray, God, not my will, but yours be done. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we honor your holy name. May your kingdom come and your will be done on earth and in our lives just as it is in heaven. May we receive from you today the bread we need to survive and to thrive. 
God, forgive us our sins for all the ways that we have insisted on our own way, just as we commit to forgiving those who have sinned against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. For yours is the kingdom, and yours is the power, and yours is the glory forever and ever. Amen.